Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 8th. 2016. The share ID for Friday, May 6, is 8720. That's 8720. This morning, A Vision for You presents Let's Back Up a Bit. Why study the preface and the forwards of the big book? Why study, or for that matter, even discuss the history and roots of Alcoholics Anonymous and its basic text? What difference can it make? How can it affect how we live and work our own individual recovery? Who really cares? It has been said that whenever a civilization or society declines or perishes, there is always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. The study of this introductory material will show us what it was that sparked AA's growth and resulted in so many men and women who recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Hopefully, studying these pages will not only serve to strengthen our personal recovery in OA, but also begin to strengthen OA as a whole. Joining us this morning is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a dedicated messenger in Overeaters Anonymous and has led hundreds of workshops on how to use the big book effectively. And we're so grateful to have him here on the line this morning. Welcome, Harlan. Harlan, star one to unmute. Is that better? Yeah, that's much better, Harlan. All right, okay, okay. <laughs> welcome to you. Thank you, Leah, and thank you for your service, and welcome to everybody on the line, and happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there, and uh, I hope you're going to have a wonderful, wonderful day surrounded in love and, and happiness. We're going to back up a little bit today. I'm Harlan, a, a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, as Leah told you. And we're going to study this morning some of the things that we normally overlook but probably shouldn't because they are things that are very, very vital to who we are and what we do and what we avoid doing. And the big book itself, not to go into the whole history, I'll save that for another time, not to go into the whole history of the writing of the big book, but the big book itself has a very colorful history. It was written as a fundraiser at first, and it was written to do something that was very, very important, but it was to carry the message, to codify what was then a haphazard method of sort of the flying blind period, 35 June the 10th, 1935, Bob gets sober. And ironically, because it is Mother's Day today, we want to back up a little bit from that because the original meeting of Bob and Bill, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, took place actually on Mother's Day, 1935. So Bill Wilson was in Akron, Ohio, on a failed business venture that we're going to talk about a little bit later on. He was in a proxy fight, and he was trying to take over a tool and die making company. 
and that Akron, Ohio is a very uh, important city in America for tire making. There's reasons why it's important, also for other reasons, but they do tires there. Henry, uh, Harvey Firestone, Goodyear, these were some of the companies that were there making tires for automobiles. And Bill Wilson was involved in a proxy fight that failed. He found himself at the Mayflower Hotel. We all know the, the story of how he made a lot of phone calls to people trying to connect with another drunk so he could work with them so he could stay sober himself. He finally called Reverend Tunks, and Reverend Tunks was an Episcopalian minister who put him in touch with a woman who was in the Oxford group named Henrietta Cyberling. And what we don't get a lot of picture of sometimes from our reading is, is that Henrietta Cyberling was part of an Oxford group meeting where Harvey Firestone had brought in Oxford group ministers to talk to his son, who was an alcoholic. And one of the people in a meeting of the Oxford group, when these ministers would come through Akron, was a meeting where people were expressing their deepest, darkest secrets that they wanted God to help them with. And Dr. Bob Smith was very reticent to admit that he was an alcoholic because he was afraid of losing what medical practice he had left. He was a proctologist. And he was a surgeon, obviously. And there were a lot of people who were a little trepidatious about getting carved up by an alcoholic surgeon because the only person in Akron, Ohio, that didn't know Bob Smith was an alcoholic was Bob Smith. And so he comes to this meeting, and they pray over him. And Henrietta Cyberling absolutely expected God to answer their prayers. And not more than a couple of weeks later, this guy from New York shows up and gives her a call and says, I'm a rum hound from New York, and I need another drunk to work on so I can stay sober. And he was very reticent. He was very reluctant to call Cyberling because he wanted to do business with these tire companies, and the Cyberlings owned the Goodyear Tire Company. He calls Henrietta thinking she's the wife of Mr. Cyberling, and he finds out that she's the daughter-in-law, and she's living in the gatehouse. And she says to Bill Wilson, come right over, Mr. Wilson, come right over, and I'm going to make a phone call to someone that I think you can help. Now, this is the Saturday before, this is Saturday afternoon before Mother's Day. He calls Ann Smith, and Ann Smith says to Henrietta Cyberling, Hen, we'd love to make the call, but... Dr. Bob just brought me a potted plant, set it on the table, and he's underneath the table potted. The next day they go over there, and as legend has it, Dr. Bob makes his wife and children agree that they're going to give this joker from New York 15 minutes, 15 minutes. And they were up there for five hours. And Dr. Bob said something to his wife that stands in history. He says, and this is the first person I've ever met that understood my drinking. Now, why is that funny? The reason that that's funny is because Bill Wilson never mentioned one word about Bob's drinking. He only talked about himself. And in identification with Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob heard his insanity coming out of someone else's mouth. 
and how many of us have had a lot of just uneasy feeling about this Overeaters Anonymous business when we first came in. But all of a sudden, not because of information, but because of identification, when we heard our insanity coming out of someone else's mouth, we stayed because we knew that we were home. And I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> Got my Fakakia allergies acting up again. But anyway... Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I know about me. And what I know is, is that when I heard my craziness coming out of someone else's mouth, it began to break down my ego. It began to break down my sense of individual, individuality. I knew that I was not the only person who thought these things about food and who behaved this way about foods. Thoughts and feelings and and actions which I believed were secret unto me. That I was the only one who thought that way, that I was the only one who behaved that way, was my thinking. And then when I found out that that wasn't true, I didn't feel as alone anymore or ever again. Now, that was in 1935. And between 1935 and 1937, AA was, a, was not AA then, they were the drunk squad of the Oxford group, but they went through a flying blind period. And in this flying blind period, they applied the six steps of the Oxford group uh, program. And the Oxford group had six steps. Number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Number three, moral inventory. Number four, confession. Number five, restitution. And number six, continued work with other alcoholics. And that was the six-step program that they were following at that time. But they saw that like anything, things were getting convoluted and changed and things were not codified. They were not set down. And in 1937, in the Smith Living Room in Akron, Ohio, Bill is there for a visit and they started counting noses on a Saturday afternoon of who had recovered, and they came up with a number, and they didn't want to let that number diminish. And there were three things that they had decided to do in that, in that 1937 Saturday afternoon. They decided that the hospitals particularly Akron City Hospital, was becoming more and more disinterested in treating these alcoholics. The alcoholics had a hard time getting into the hospital. Doctors often had to lie about a diagnosis to get them admitted. And there were people in there with leg problems or liver problems or kidney problems that were doing something that the drunks weren't doing. And the drunks weren't paying their bills. And the drunks weren't cooperating. And the hospitals were giving these guys more and more resistance to admitting them. So they wanted to start a chain of hospitals, a chain of treatment centers. They also wanted people to go hither and yon to spread the word of the book that they had decided in that meeting that they were going to write. 
And these were people that were going to be the missionaries, going to places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Denver, Chicago, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, wherever that may be. They were going to take the message beyond Akron and New York. They were impatient, and they felt that at the rate that they were going, it would be another many years before the message would get beyond New York and Akron and a smattering in Cleveland and a little smattering in Washington, D.C. They were impatient. So, again, there were three things that they wanted to do. Number one, start a chain of hospitals. Bill Wilson, coming from Wall Street, saw the value of chains. He saw the chain drug stores, the chain dry goods stores, the chain stores that were coming in at that time in the grocery business as well. And he wanted to start that. And Dr. Bob was going to head up the hospitals. The, missionary, the missionaries would be headed up by Bill himself. Now, thank God, and that's, a, that's, a, that's another story that maybe we'll do a special edition on someday, but thank God when these three things were presented to the fellowship, the fellowship, the earliest group conscience uh, started to take hold because Bill and Bob realized that they couldn't govern OA, or excuse me, AA or uh, the Oxford group by mandate, the group conscience didn't like this idea. They felt that it would cause a professional class within AA. They felt that it would cause clashes when it came to property and money and prestige, things that we see in our traditions today. But there were no traditions then. And so what we had coming out of that 1937 situation was the writing of the book and that is a whole other story, too, because that was fraught with controversy and arguments and clashes over money. We're going to read a little bit this morning about a dinner that the Rockefellers gave. There was actually two dinners for these guys. We'll save that for just a few minutes. And let's go to page XI. I have a fourth edition big book in my hands. I hope you have a fourth edition, too. And it says in the preface, <clears throat> this is the fourth edition of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. The first edition appeared in April 1939. In the following 16 years, more than 300,000 copies went into circulation. The second edition, published in 1955, reached a total of more than 1,150,500 copies. <clears throat> Excuse me. The third edition, which came off the press in 1976, <clears throat> sorry, I said that wrong, 1,150,500 copies, the, which came off the press in 1976, achieved a circulation of approximately 19,550,000 in all formats. Now, when we read this paragraph, we have to understand what a miracle we're looking at. Because when the book first came out, you couldn't give it away. You couldn't give it away. But because of a series of God-given events, a series of miracles, people coming in at exactly the right time, saying the right things, doing the right things, it has grown into what we see today. When the book first came out, as I said, you couldn't give it away. And we're going to read this morning not only about the Rockefellers, we're going to read about some articles and some things that happened which pushed the book project forward, and it pushed it forward in a way unimaginable 
when it first was written. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Because the book has become the basic text of our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third, and fourth editions. The section called The Doctor's Opinion has been kept intact just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. Now let's talk for just a second about William D. Silkworth, our great medical benefactor. And I know that in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a panel discussing the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion is the most fantastic breakthrough that we have because the doctor's opinion emancipates us from thinking that this happened because of something we did, that we zigged when we should have zagged or zagged when we should have zigged and our parents and our neighborhood and our dog and our cat are to blame. And none of that is true. Dr. Silkworth took great risk to write that. And when he originally wrote the doctor's opinion, he insisted that he would write it, but, they, they, but that they do not put his name in the book. Why? Because the Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association had not yet accepted alcoholism as an illness. And he said, I will write this opinion, but don't you dare put my name in there. And it wasn't until 1949 when the distinguished psychiatrist Harry Tebow, who also was Bill Wilson's friend and psychiatrist, he wrote a paper in 1949, which was 10 years after the book was published and, written, and finished, in which he thought that alcoholism was an illness. And in 49, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, accepted alcoholism as an illness. And Dr. Silkworth, between the 10th and 11th printing of the first edition in 1949, told Bill Wilson, okay, Bill, you can put my name in there now. But up until then, if you see a copy of the book, uh, the first edition, first 10 printings, or a replica copy, copy of it, you'll see blank, blank, MD, because he did not want his name in there. But he obviously remains our great medical benefactor. And unfortunately, he passed in 1951, two years later. But the opinion that he wrote is the basis of step one. And the opinion that he wrote explains things for which we cannot otherwise account. He explains the fact, not to go into the whole thing, he explains the fact that we suffer from an allergy of the body. An allergy is an abnormal adverse reaction to a food, beverage, or substance. Abnormal and adverse means it's not normally the reaction, and the adverse part means that it is harmful. Now, he imparted this information on Bill Wilson, and Bill recounts it on page 7 of the big book, and on page 7 of the big book, Bill Wilson comes under the care of Dr. Silkworth, and he, he says, and I'll quote, he says, best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily 
the allergy, and mentally the twist of the mind. He says, it relieved me somewhat to learn, who did he learn it from, so forth, that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. We learn from the doctor that most of us eat because of the, we like the effect produced by food. That effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating certain foods. And we learn from the doctor that any account of this, which leaves out this physical factor, is incomplete. Because for the centuries, the centuries before Dr. Silkworth, this was believed to be a condition of the mind only. He was the first person to observe and to put down on paper this idea of a physical factor, the physical allergy. And if you've listened to me online or you've heard me on a retreat or a convention or on a podcast, you know that I learned from the doctor's opinion that food is never the problem. Food is never the problem for a compulsive overeater. Food is the answer to the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday, normal, human emotions. Every human being on the face of this earth has happiness, sadness, jealousy, guilt, anger, fear, remorse. All human beings have these emotions. Every one of us has these. And in the mind of a normal person, a person that does not have the mental twist, these emotions will dissipate quite easily by having a glass of wine, walking the dog, going to the gym, spending time with your family, watching a program, reading a book, whatever that person can do to dissipate the level of these emotions, they learn to do and they're fine. Not so with a compulsive overeater, because when these emotions within me build to a level where they become dangerously loud, my brain will know what it is that it needs to push me to do to get rid of the intense, searing, unrelenting, debilitating, punishing pain of not eating. And the pain of not eating becomes so intense. I can't stand it. I can't take it. I can't live with the pain of not eating. And although the intelligence side of my brain says, don't eat that, don't eat the raisinets, don't eat the Kit Kats, don't eat the fries. The emotional side of my brain where the mental twist lives says, eat those French fries, eat those Doritos because Tomorrow, you'll stay on your diet. Tomorrow will be different, but we're going to eat that today. And I end up eating the food. And for about nine seconds, I feel fantastic. I feel great. And the pain of not eating is no longer in me. And it worked. And the brain says, I told you so. Now, if that's all that was wrong with me, I'd be fine. But there's another component that Dr. Silkworth gives us 
and he gives this to us in a way that is not only accurate, but is timeless so we can draw on that information for the rest of our lives. And the information that he gives us, remember when he said any, excuse me, description of this, which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. So when I eat those French fries or I eat that candy bar or I eat the cake, I also trigger the physical allergy. And in triggering the physical allergy, that biological mandate to eat more of the same, I eat more than I had intended to. And the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it's just endless. Now, if I can't eat because of the allergy, and I can't keep from eating because of the mental twist, I am powerless over food, and my life is unmanageable. And that information comes from the doctor's opinion written by William D, Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. It does not come from knowledge we acquired going to Oxford group meetings or AA or OA. It comes from Silkworth. The second edition added the appendices, the 12 traditions and the directions for getting in touch with AA, but the chief change was in the section of personal stories, which has expanded to reflect the fellowship's growth. Bill's story, Dr. Bob's nightmare, and one other personal history, and that other personal history would be our southern friend. Our southern friend will never be changed or omitted or deleted or anything because it is mentioned in the text of the original 164 pages, and that story was written by Fitz Mayo. His name was John Henry Fitzhugh Mayo, and he was an early member of AA, and he, his story will never be omitted because, as I said, it was mentioned. From the first edition were retained intact. Three were edited, and one of these was retitled. New versions of two stories were written with new titles. 30 completely new stories were added, and the story section was divided into three parts under the same headings that are used now. In the third edition, part one, Pioneers of AA, was left unchanged. Nine of the stories in part two, they stopped in time, were carried over from the second edition. Eight new stories were added in part three. They lost nearly all. Eight stories were retained. Five new ones were added. The fourth edition includes the 12 concepts for world service and revises the three sections of personal stories as follows. One new story has been added to part one and two that originally appeared in part three have been repositioned there. Six stories have been deleted. Six of the stories in part two have been carried over. Eleven new ones have been added and eleven taken out. Part three now includes twelve new stories. Eight were removed in addition to the two that were transferred to part one. All changes made over the years in the big book, AA members fond nickname for this volume, have had the same purpose to represent the current membership of Alcoholics Anonymous more accurately and thereby to reach more alcoholics. If you have a drinking problem, we hope that you may pause in reading one of the 42 personal stories and think, yes, that happened to me, or more important, yes, I have felt like that, or most important, yes, I believe this program from work can work for me too. In other words, as the ages went down and the bottoms came up and there was more diversity represented in the fellowship of AA, they changed the stories 
so we could find people that we can identify with. And it is through that identification that we will gain that entrance into the fellowship and say, yes, I am one of them too. This program can work for me too. And what does Dr. Silkworth tell us? In order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. And that is something that we're going to also talk about this morning, too. Here's the forward to the first edition. This is the forward as it appeared in the first printing of the first edition in 1939. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Now, this is a very important sentence because if I'm going to have issue with the author of a book, be it a finance book, be it a, uh, a science book, a math book, whatever that may be, I'm probably going to be at odds with one, two, maybe three people that write a book. This is a book by more than 100 men and women who have what? Have, who have recovered, past tense, from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Now, that is the first sentence that I see in the forward to the first edition. And if, that, if I'm at all awake, I can say to myself, these people have what I want. These people have traveled the path that I choose to go on. And I'm not going to argue with a hundred of them that have been successful. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book let's take a look at that word show notice it doesn't say to tell other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book notice it doesn't say to describe or to tell it says to show and in order for me to show you how to do something if i'm going to show you how to get from Scottsdale Road and Shea Boulevard to Scottsdale Road and Cactus Boulevard, I know exactly how to do that because I've done that a lot of times. If you want me to show you how I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, I can show you how I've done that because for 17 years, I have not wanted to want to overeat. I don't want to want to overeat today because of a program of recovery that is described in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I came in here in 1979, and I put together some years, but I didn't follow through, and I slipped up, and I, I relapsed, and I had to start again. But I have 17 current years of recovery, so I can show you what I've done. I can show you things that I've experienced. And that word show is very important. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. Notice it doesn't say a weak person, a troubled person, a person who had bad parents, a person who lives in a bad part of town, it says that we are sick people, a sick person. And besides, we are sure that our way of living has its advantages for all. I can't think of an area in my life where these steps don't help. 
And I would think that anybody who works these steps is, is going to have their life improved dramatically. It is important that we remain anonymous because we are too few at present to handle the overwhelming number of personal appeals which may result from this publication. Being mostly business or professional folk, we could not well carry on our occupations in such an event. We would like it understood that our, alcohol, our alcoholic work is an avocation. In other words, they didn't make it their full-time job. When writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we urge each of our fellowship to omit his personal name, designating himself <clears throat> instead excuse me, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very earnestly, we ask the press also to observe this request, for otherwise we shall be greatly handicapped. We are not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. There's no fees or dues whatever, whatsoever. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. Now, when they originally formatted Tradition 3, Tradition 3 states the only requirement for membership is, an, is a desire to stop compulsively overeating or, or, or a desire to stop drinking in the case of AA. They made Bill take that word honest out because they said, we don't care what your motivation is. We don't care if it's because of your wife or your husband or your whatever. We just, if you want to stop drinking, we are here for you. But in the original forward to the first edition, he puts in honest desire to stop drinking. This was several years before the traditions, but that's how he really felt. We are not allied with any particular faith, sect, or denomination, nor do we oppose anyone. Again, that's, our, that's part of our traditions now, too. We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. We shall be interested to hear from those who are getting results from this book, particularly from those who have commenced work with other alcoholics. We should like to be helpful in such cases, to such cases. Inquiry by scientific, medical, and religious societies will be welcomed. Now, here is the forward to the second edition, and we're going to get into some of the statistics here in just a minute. Since the uh, figures given in this forward describe the fellowship as it was in 1955, since the original forward to this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Our earliest printing voice, the hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at his destination. Already continues the early text, twos and threes and fives of us have sprung up in other communities. See, it's starting to spread now in the period of time between 39 and 55. Sixteen years have elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups. Now, when you look at that, that is an absolute miracle. 6,000 groups whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Now, that's a lofty, lofty statement. What a miracle. Groups are to be found in each of the United States and all the provinces of Canada. AA has flourishing communities in the British Isles, the Scandinavian countries, South Africa, South America, Mexico, Alaska, Australia, and Hawaii. All told, promising beginnings have been made in some 50 foreign countries and U.S. possessions. Some are just now taking shape in Asia. 
Many of our friends encourage us by saying that this is but a beginning, only the augury of a much larger future ahead. If you have a big book in front of you, why don't you turn to the bottom of page 159. 159. I'll give you a second to get over there. Look at what it says at the bottom of 159. A year and six months later, these three... Dotson, Smith, and, and Wilson, had succeeded with seven more. So in a year and six months, 18 months, they had 10 people sober in the world of AA. That's six, at eight, uh, a year and six months, 18 months, there were 10 people sober. Now let's go back to page XV or 15 in Roman numerals, and we see that we have 150,000 recovered alcoholics. And we're going to talk about why in just a second here. The spark that was to flare into the first AA group was struck in Akron, Ohio, in June of 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. Bill wasn't really a stockbroker. What he was was a New York City stock speculator who made his living selling his appointments, uh, his opinions, not his appointments, his opinions to people, and they cut him in on the profit. Six months earlier, the, bro the broker had been relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. That would be Ebby Thatcher. He had also been greatly helped by the late William V. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who was now accounted no less than a medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next pages. From this doctor, the broker had learned the grave nature of alcoholism. What did he learn? He learned of the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. Though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford group, he was convinced of the need for moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. Now, how did he get to that dependence upon God? By understanding that his dependence upon him had failed 100% of the time. So when we talk about God, we may offend some people. We may bristle some feathers. So let me talk about that for just a minute. When we talk of God, we mean the God of your understanding or the higher power of your understanding. If you are an atheist, you are welcome here. You can recover here. If you are a firm believer, you can recover here. You are welcome here. If you are an agnostic, one who's not sure, an agnostic, ag means without, gnostic means knowledge. They're not sure one way or the other. You are welcome here and you can recover here. There is no qualification. There is no requirement that you believe in the God that I have in my head and in my heart. It is God as you understand God. If you don't want that to be a deity in the sky of your religion, then make it something different. You are free to do that here. We're not here to tell you what God is or what God isn't. There are two things I know about God. There is one, and it's not me. And as long as I keep those two things in my heart, 
There is one, and it's not me. I am on the path to recovery. Prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic, but he had succeeded only in keeping himself sober himself. The broker had gone to Akron on a business venture, which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must, now there's that word, must, carry his message to another alcoholic. And how many times have I answered the phone and it's somebody in OA that said, my sponsor told me to call you. I'll answer questions. That's fine. That's what I'm here for. That's fine. But I have to wonder how many of us are working 11-step programs and not 12-step programs or 10- or 9-step programs and not 12-step programs because I have to be at the ready to answer these questions seven days a week 365 days a year, no matter what it interrupts. If it interrupts business, if it interrupts personal pleasures, if it interrupts whatever, I am here and I am here to take these phone calls and be of service. That's how I stay sober myself. Uh, Excuse me. Leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again, he suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. That alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. The physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. Dr. Bob was in the Oxford Group movement a lot longer than Bill Wilson. Dr. Bob was a far more religious person than Bill Wilson. Dr. Bob was a person who had been attending Oxford Group meetings for a long time. But when Bill met Bob, Bill was sober and Bob was drunk. So Bob had to look at Bill and say, what is this guy doing? Not thinking, not not wishing. What's he doing that I'm not doing? And it wasn't until Bob finally surrendered that he was able to stay sober as well. When the broker, excuse me, the physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma but had failed. When the broker, sorry, gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered up never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. And those are very controversial words, permanent recovery. I'm not cured of compulsive overeating, but I can be in permanent recovery as long as my efforts in the steps are occurring every day relentlessly. Now, let's take a look, too, very quickly, because the time is going. What was different about the way Bill Wilson presented this information to Dr. Bob and Akron than all the failures he had had in New York? Well, Bill Wilson was talking to the drunks in New York from a spiritual hilltop, and he was talking to them about God and this and spiritual awakenings and, excuse me, spiritual experiences. 
And they didn't want to hear it. They were drunk. They didn't want to be sobered up, number one. Number two, he was talking to them about something that they couldn't identify with at all. And right before he goes to Akron, right before he goes to Akron, just like when somebody told you, go to the store for me when you were a kid, when did they give you the money? Right before you left for the store. God puts this into his, into Bill Wilson's head through the mouth of Silkworth. Silkworth says, it's good to see you, Bill. I've been hearing about some of the shenanigans you're pulling out there, trying to talk to these drunks about this white light spiritual experience that you had. Why don't you talk to the drunks like I talk to you? Why don't you tell them about the mental obsession, the mental twist that you have? Why don't you tell them about how you feel when you're not drinking? Why don't you tell them about the physical allergy? And the first person that Bill Wilson tried this new technique on was Dr. Bob. And it flourished into the fellowship that we have today. Hence, I'm on page XVII or 17 in Roman numerals. Hence, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became Alcoholics Anonymous number three. And that would be Bill Dotson. He never had another drink. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. Uh, when There was Ernie Galbraith, who later married Dr. Bob's daughter. He would get drunk and sober and drunk and sober, and they just couldn't figure out how, how were they going to keep Ernie sober. But the one thing he did was when he came to Dr. Bob's funeral in 1950, he was sober. Excuse me. When the broker returned to New York, excuse me, in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at that time. A second small group promptly took shape at New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third at Cleveland. Besides these, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron or New York who were trying to form groups in other cities. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. And they were seeing something that they never believed they would ever see. Drunks like them getting sober. Because never before in the history of mankind, even when the Washingtonians were around, never before were these drunks getting sober like this. It was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. So here is the formulation of the book idea. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939. The book was published in April of 39 by the publication of this volume. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. The flying blind period ended, and AA entered a new phase of its pioneering time. And they kicked around different titles to the book. One of the titles was they were going to make it the Bill Wilson Movement. One of the titles that they really liked was The Way Out. One of the titles that they liked was The Empty Glass. One of the titles that they liked, <clears throat> excuse me, was Alcoholics Anonymous. 
because they were anonymous alcoholics, and that is the one that stuck. And then the split came from the Oxford group a little bit later on. With the appearance of the new book, a great deal began to happen. Dr. Harry Emerson, Emerson Fosdick, the noted clergyman, reviewed it with approval. In the fall of 1939, Fulton Ausler, then editor of Liberty, printed a piece in his magazine called Alcoholics and God. This brought a rush of 800 frantic inquiries into the little New York office, which meanwhile had been established. Each inquiry was painstakingly answered. Pamphlets and books were sent out. Businessmen traveling out of existing groups were referred to these prospective newcomers. In other words, Bill was like a sales manager. He would get these inquiries, and he would say to somebody, okay, uh, Jimmy Burwell and Fitzmayu, you guys are down in Washington, D.C. I need you to call on Freddie Jones. I need you to call on Sam Schmo because he had written in, and, and they would dispatch these guys. But the book was going out, and the book was going out, and people were writing back into the AA office that we're not having this white light spiritual experience. What's going on here? We're doing everything, and that's why you have Appendix 2, and you have the changing of the 12th step. The people were not having this white light spiritual experience, and they wrote Appendix 2, which we don't have the time to go into now. It's on page 567 of the fourth edition where it explains the difference between spiritual experience, which is what Bill had, and spiritual awakening, which is what I had, which comes about slowly over time. And they also change the 12th step from having had a spiritual experience to having had a spiritual awakening. So when we talk about the first 164 pages never being changed, that's not true. They changed in the, 10th, in the 11th printing, I believe, or 10th printing of the first edition, and then certainly in the second edition, it no longer says having had a spiritual awakening, or excuse me, experience, it says having had a spiritual awakening, and that is in step 12. New groups, <clears throat> excuse me, businessmen traveling out of existing groups were referred to these prospective newcomers. New groups started up and it was found to the astonishment of everyone that AA's message could be transmitted in the mail as well as by word of mouth, the big book. By the end of 1939, it was estimated that 800 alcoholics were on their way to recovery. In the spring of 1940, John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave a dinner for many of his friends to which he invited AA members to tell their stories. News of this got on the world wires. Inquiries poured in, and again, many people went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2,000. Then Jack Alexander wrote a feature article in the Saturday Evening Post and placed such a compelling picture of AA before the general public that alcoholics in need of help really deluged us. By the close of 1941, AA numbered 8,000 members. The mushrooming process was in full swing. AA had become a national institution. Rockefeller actually had two instances where he met with AA people. And this was the second one, and he was very consistent that he thought money that they would give, because he had lots of very wealthy people. Wendell Wilkie was there, and Shaw was there, and um, they got to Rockefeller uh, through, is it odd or is it cod kind of a thing. Dr. Leonard Strong, 
was Bill Wilson's brother-in-law. He was married to Dorothy Wilson, and Leonard Strong was talking to Bill Wilson when he first came home from Akron after the book, The Treatment Center, and Missionary Idea had been bantered around. And Dr. Leonard Strong said to Bill Wilson, I knew a girl, and I think she has an uncle that's close to Rockefeller. Now listen to what I'm saying. I knew a girl and I think she has an uncle that's close to Rockefeller. The guy's name was Willard Richardson, and Willard Richardson was on the board of Rockefeller's company, very close friends with Rockefeller, very, very gentle, wonderful Christian man, and he saw Leonard and Bill Wilson. He had lunch with Bill Wilson. He sets this thing up, and they decided not to give them any money because they said money will spoil this thing. And they were devastated. Hank Parkhurst was there, and Wilson was there, and they even traipsed in a bunch of other alcoholics and stuff. And Dr. Bob came from the Akron Contingency. And Shaw, which was one of Rockefeller's board members, goes out to Akron to investigate Alcoholics Anonymous, to find out if it's legit, to find out if it's okay. He goes to Akron, he finds out about Dr. Bob, but they again decide that they were going to, they had originally decided they were going to give them $50,000 for the treatment centers, the missionaries, the book. That $50,000 became $5,000. 3,000 of it went to Dr. Bob to raise the mortgage on his home, and Bill Wilson took the other 2,000 because the drunks that Bill had at his house were eating Lois and him out of house and home. They had these drunks. The drunks didn't pay for anything. Then they have this other dinner in 1940, and the Rockefellers uh, get this band of people together, and they gave the Alcoholics Foundation. I'm kind of I'm kind of truncating this because of time. They gave him. and they drew on that $5,000 a year for about five years. And then they told them, we don't need your money anymore. But just to kind of look at this Jack Alexander thing, which in 2016, many of us can just look at that Jack Alexander and pass it off. Jack Alexander was an investigative reporter that was sent into labor unions and businesses and political groups to find out what he could expose about them to do them damage. Jack Alexander was an investigative reporter of unbelievable prowess. He comes in to investigate Alcoholics Anonymous, and he writes a favorable article about them, an article in which he is effusive about his, in his praise of Alcoholics Anonymous and says that these people are wonderful. This organization is wonderful, and it works. And that got the attention of people. And the Saturday Evening Post at that time was very, very popular. This was the cusp of World War II. There was no TV. There was no, we were just, just coming out of the Depression. And people read newspapers and they read magazines and they listened to the radio. And this Jack Alexander piece was very helpful. Bottom of XXVIII, or 18 in Roman numerals, our society then entered a fearsome and exciting adolescent period. The test that it faced was this. Could these large numbers of erstwhile erratic alcoholics successfully meet and work together? Would there be quarrels over membership, leadership, and money? Would there be stridings for power and prestige? Would there be schisms which would split AA apart? 
soon AA was beset by these very problems on every side and in every group. One of the people who helped put the book project together, Hank Parkhurst, the one who wrote one of the stories in the first edition, the one in whose office the big book was typed by Ruthie Hawk. He got drunk, and he's going up and down the eastern seaboard telling people not to send their money into the main AA office, that Bill Wilson was a crook, that Bill Wilson had stolen his girl. He was in love with Ruthie Hawk. Now, Bill and Hank were both married at the time, but he wanted to run away with Ruthie. And when she wouldn't go with him, he assumed that she was playing footsie with Bill Wilson, and that wasn't true. So he accused Bill of great, great wrongs, and this was blowing AA apart. What is our first tradition? Unity, right? It comes out of this. But out of this frightening and at first disrupting experience, the conviction grew that AAs had to hang together or die separately. We had to unify our fellowship or pass off the scene. As we discovered the principles, the steps, by which the individual alcoholic could live, so we had to evolve principles by which the AA groups and AA as a whole could survive and function effectively. It was thought that no alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society. So here you see the traditions. And remember that the second edition came out in 55. Well, the tradition, the 12 steps and 12 traditions were written with essays about the steps, not instructions, but essays to sell the traditions. The traditions were first introduced in Grapevine Magazine. And in Grapevine Magazine, Bill introduced these traditions slowly and gently because he knew that no alcoholic likes to be told what to do. He didn't call them laws. He didn't call them rules. He called them traditions that these are our traditions, sort of like Fiddler on the Roof, that our leaders might serve but never govern, that each group was to be autonomous and there was to be no professional class of therapy. There were, no, there were to be no fees or dues. Our expenses were to be met by our own voluntary contributions. There was to be the least possible organization, even in our service centers. Our public relations were to be based on attraction rather than promotion. It was decided that all members ought to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, TV, and films. And in no circumstances should we give endorsements, make alliances, or enter public controversies. This was the substance of AA's 12 traditions, which are stated in full on page 561 of this book. Though none of these principles had the force of rules or laws, they had become so widely accepted by 1950 that they were confirmed by our first international conference held at Cleveland. Today, the remarkable unity of AA is one of the greatest assets that our society has. So when we look at AA and the traditions being accepted in 1950, we have the big book coming out in the 30s. We have the 12 and 12 coming out in the 50s, the traditions in the 50s. Most of the literature in AA comes out in the 50s and the 60s. But in the 40s, Bill was in a very deep, dark depression. Bill suffered from depression. And at the same time, AA was blowing apart. There was no unity. And it was blowing apart. And somebody said to him, we're going to go the way of the Washingtonians. And the Washingtonians passed off the scene. They were begun in 1848 because they made alliances and they accepted uh, uh, outside donations. And they, they violated everything because they had no traditions. 
but we didn't want to go the way of the Washingtonians. We wanted to succeed. While the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out, public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For, there were, for this, there were two principal reasons. The large numbers of recoveries and reunited homes, these, were, these made their impressions everywhere. Now, we're going to talk about this next little section here. Of alcoholics who came into AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other thousands came to a few AA meetings and at first decided they didn't want the program. But great numbers of these, about two out of three, began to return as time passed. Now, I have been very, very lucky and honored that I have been able to serve Overeaters Anonymous because I've done big book studies and spoken at conventions, regional conventions, and the OA birthday. The OA birthday is a beautiful convention. It's held in January every year in Los Angeles. I recommend it strongly. And we've all got the World Convention coming up in September of this year in Boston, and I don't know if I'll be doing anything there or not. But I have been very lucky to speak in most of the states in this union, and I've spoken in Canada as well. And we cannot talk about, uh, when, we're, when we add the 50% and then the 25 that's 75% recovery. We can't talk about anything like that. We can't talk about 50% recovery. We can't talk about 40% recovery in Overeaters Anonymous. We're lucky if we can talk about one, two, maybe 3% recovering. Maybe two or 3%, 1%, 1.5% of the people that are stumbling in the doors of Overeaters Anonymous are achieving recovery. Why? Because we're getting away from the very principles in this book. And when we start to water down that recovery with other things, and we start to take it cafeteria style. Maybe I'll do a little of this, but I won't do any of that. Maybe I'll do some of this, but none of that. That is when these recovering numbers start to plummet. I don't know about anybody else, but I got a really, really bad case of compulsive overeating when I was born. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school in Chicago. By the time I graduated college in Chicago, I was over 500 pounds. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I was 700 pounds. My legs were in different zip codes. I don't want to go into all the details of how much furniture I broke. I don't want to go into all the details about how I couldn't buy clothing. I don't want to go into all the details that I couldn't get in and out of a car. I couldn't go to the movies because I couldn't fit in the seats. I couldn't go to the bathroom and clean myself without a wall to lean against. I don't want to mention that. I don't want to mention the fact that I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years of age. And I don't want to mention the fact that I lived in filth and squalor and my, the, the sweat that came out of me made me smell like a zoo. I don't want to go into the fact that I couldn't walk and I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't lay flat in a bed and breathe because there was so much fat on my chest. I don't want to live like that ever again. I don't want to live in the fear and the degradation of what this disease wrought into my life. 
So I'm going to follow the precepts of this book as close to the letter as I humanly can. I'm not saints. I'm not, I'm not a saint. I'm not perfect. But I'm going to do the best I can to recover by following this book of, over, of Alcoholics Anonymous to the best of my ability to the letter of the law. Another reason for the wide acceptance of AA was the ministration of friends, friends in medicine, religion, and the press together with innumerable others who became our able and, and persistent advocates. Without such support, AA could have only made the slowest progress. Some of the recommendations of AA's early medical and religious friends will be found further on in this book. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religious organization. Neither does AA take any particular medical point of view, though we cooperate widely with the men of medicine as well as with the men of religion. Alcohol being no respecter of persons, we are an accurate accurate cross-section of America and in distant lands, the same democratic evening up process is now going on. By personal of religious affiliation, we include Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, and a sprinkling of Muslims and Buddhists. More than 15% of us are women. <laughs> at present, excuse me, our membership is pyramiding at the rate of about 20% a year. So far, upon total problem, so far upon the total problem of several million actual and potential alcoholics in the world, we have made only a scratch. In all probability, we shall never be able to touch more than a fair fraction of the alcohol problem and all its ramifications. Upon therapy for the alcoholic himself, we surely have no monopoly, yet it is our great hope that all those who have as yet found no answer may begin to find one of the pages of this book and will presently join us on that high road to new freedom. Forward to the third edition. By March 1976, when this edition went to the printer, the total worldwide membership of Alcoholics Anonymous was conservatively estimated at more than 1 million. Wow. With almost 28,000 groups meeting in over 90 countries. Surveys of groups in the United States and Canada indicate that AA is reaching out not only to more and more people, but to a wider and wider range. Women now make up more than one-fourth of the membership among newer members. The proportion, of, <coughs> the proportion is nearly one-third. <clears throat> Seven percent of the AA surveyed are less than 30 years of age, among them many in their teens. The basic principles of the AA program, it appears, hold good for individuals with many different lifestyles. Just as the program has brought recovery to those of many different nationalities, the 12 steps that summarize the program may be called La Dose Pesos, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in one country, La Dues Etapis, I hope I'm doing that right. If it was Yiddish, I could do it, but in another, but they trace exactly the same path to recovery that was blazed by the earliest members of Alcoholics Anonymous. In spite of the great increase in the size and span of this fellowship and its core, it remains simple and personal. Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. So it never changes. It never gets different from what Bill did for Bob and what people do every day. Forward to the fourth edition and then we'll be done. And this this fourth edition of Alcoholics Anonymous came off the press in November of 2001 
at the start of a new millennium since the third edition was published in 1976, worldwide membership of AA has just about doubled to an estimated 2 million or more. Wow. With nearly 100,800 groups meeting in approximately 150 countries around the world. Literature has played a major role in AA's growth, and a striking phenomenon of, that, of the past quarter century has been the explosion of translations of our basic literature into many languages and dialects. In country after country where the AA seed was planted, it has taken root slowly at first, then growing by leaps and bounds. When literature has become available, currently Alcoholics Anonymous has been translated into 43 languages. And then asterisk at the bottom, it says, in 2013, Alcoholics Anonymous is in 70 languages. Wow. Why? Because it works and it brings aid and it brings comfort and it brings relief from this intenable pain to people all over, whether they be tall or short, black or white, green or yellow, uh, Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, Jewish, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that this book has returned more alcoholics to society, more compulsive overeaters to society, gamblers, addicts of all kinds, than all other methods combined. As the message of recovery has reached larger numbers of people and has also touched the lives of a vastly greater variety of suffering alcoholics, when the phrase, we are people who normally would not mix, page 17 of this book, was written in 1939, it referred to a fellowship composed largely of men and a few women with quite similar social, ethnic, and economic backgrounds. Like so much of AA's basic text, those words have proved to be far more visionary than the founding members could ever have imagined. And I have to think that Bill and Bob and the original 100, Ebby and, and those guys, Bill Dotson, are smiling on us from up in heaven, knowing that we're using this book and their traditions and their steps to gain relief from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. The stories added to this edition represent a membership whose characteristics of age, gender, race, and culture have widened and deepened to encompass virtually everyone the first 100 members could have hoped to reach. While our literature has preserved the integrity of the AA message, sweeping changes in society as a whole are reflected in new customs and practices within the fellowship, taking advantage of technological advances. For example, AA members with computers can participate in meetings online, sharing with fellow alcoholics across the country or around the world. In any meeting anywhere, AAs share experience, strength, and hope with each other in order to stay sober and help other alcoholics. Modem to modem or face to face, AAs speak the language of the heart in all its power and simplicity. And with that, I'll pass, Leah. Thank you so much, Harlan, for <clears throat> such a fascinating, captivating, thorough presentation this morning. Just absolutely beautiful. Thank you very much. Harlan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. Now we will transition to questions. If you have a question for Harlan, you can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. I have a question. And your Guys, 
I got you, Charles. Who else? Sally B. I'm Laura sorry. G. Laura G. And it was Sally B. Sally B. Anyone else? Right. Well, let's start with that trilogy with Sally B, please. Um, hi, Harlan. Thank you so hi. much. I, I wanted to ask you about one thing. Um, when you talked about the buildup of emotions, mm-hmm. um, I I really have a problem there. You know, I, I mm-hmm. tend towards getting, you mentioned Bill Wilson, uh, mm-hmm. suffered from depression. I suffer from bouts of depression mm-hmm. and the buildup of emotion. And... Um, my sponsor's given me some tools, and they help some. Um, and I have not picked up food over it, though I would have certainly in the past. Is there anything you can say about it? Gosh, Sally, I would love to, but we have to remember that clinical depression is an outside issue. And huh. if you have clinical depression, that needs the attention of a psychologist, and it often needs medicine, it needs therapy, it needs things that are outside the scope of these steps and these traditions. So when we're talking about the buildup of normal, everyday human emotions, if you are suffering from clinical depression or clinical anxiety or any other, you know, malady like that, that becomes an outside issue. And my only opinion on it becomes that we are told in the big book, do not discount the, the doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, do not discount that. So if you need help, you need to get it. When I had my hips replaced, I didn't go to a meeting. I went to a surgeon. <laughs> when, I, when I needed my knee replaced, I didn't go to a meeting. I went to a surgeon. Uh, so okay. sometimes we have, you know, if my car broke down, I'd go to the mechanic. I wouldn't take it to the meeting. So it's you know at some level you you have to seek that out that help. I'm sorry I couldn't be more helpful, but that's oh no, opinion. that was fabulously helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Charles H. Hey, thank you, Harlan, for that presentation. It was definitely clear cut. Um, thank you, Charles. You're welcome. Real quick, I just wanted to um get your insight on uh, how do you feel about sponsoring people over the phone. And um, what's been your success rate with that? And then part two to this question is, um, as you, uh, as I believe you well know that the first three steps is a conclusion. Uh, mm-hmm. While working with newcomers or, you know, retreads or whoever, mm-hmm. how many times um, will you allow, well, how, what's, your, what's your cutoff point with someone that, um, you know, after giving them a couple of opportunities that you you could well know, see that they, they have not come to a conclusion for those first three steps. So if you could just shed some light on that, okay. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. We'd be very glad to. And Charles, it's good to hear your voice. I love you. Um, sponsoring over the phone, I've done and I continue to do, and I've had some very, very good success with it. However, here is what I will tell you. It is if you live in an area, if the person lives in an area where there are lots of regular face-to-face meetings, 
where the person can actually eyeball them, that would be preferable. But I have sponsored over the phone quite successfully for a very long time, and I've sponsored face-to-face <clears throat> -face successfully and unsuccessfully for a very long time as well. So I've had people relapse over the phone from long distances. I've had people relapse that went to the same meetings that I go to. So, um, yeah, that, I've done that, and it would be preferable if they actually had someone that could eyeball them. But, yes, in, in the absence of that, I'm here. Here's my cutoff point. If you are not doing what the book is telling you to do, not me, and you're not moving through at a quick pace, you're not, in my opinion, I'm not going to recover doing that. Okay? So at some point, this is, this is what I do. If you walk to me, I run to you. If you're very enthusiastic about working the steps and you're very enthusiastic about maintaining a quick pace, I will make time for you. I will give you what you give me. If you're very lackadaisical and you don't seem to give a crap what's going on, then I, I turn you loose. I, I don't have time for that. I really don't have time for that. If you are continuing to pick up the food, I'm going to follow the uh, practice of Chapter 7, I'm going to leave you alone because I may spoil a future chance. If, if there's a couple of slips here and there and I can sense that you're working, but I can sense that you're slipping, okay. But if I see wanton eating where you've made a decision to go out there, then I tell the person, look, I love you. I want to help you. Go out there. Get it out of your system because if it's still fun, you ain't done it. And if you still want to eat and you're still, you know, in that mode of I want to eat, I want to eat, go ahead because I can't stand in the way of it. I can't, I can't get in the way between you and your food. So that's, that's basically how I do it. Um, I hope that answers it. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Laura G., your turn. Am I being heard? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good morning, everybody. This is Laura G., a compulsive overeater. Um, my question is about how you talked about the um, experience, spiritual experience, was mm -hmm. replaced with the spiritual awakening, or not replaced, but more extrapolating on the awakening. And also how you talked about I want to tie them. I'm going to try to tie them together so that the question is clear. Mm -hmm. The um, how the how the traditions and the principles, you know, all this stuff all comes together. Also, what one of the you just answered how um, sometimes you you're as a sponsor need it quick or not quick or I mean you put down some of your parameters your your boundaries per se. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff it ties in brilliantly to the the um awakening thing like we process differently we all have a different need we all have different needs and so the question is do you think that the awakening part the reason why they emphasized on it so much is be, depending on when we start really receiving and understanding all these variables that pull you into a possible fully state of recovery which will be the experience if that was clear. I'm not really sure what the question is. Um, Laura, I want to be more clear. 
are you asking me the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? So I'm asking if you think all the verbiage and all the history that you explained this morning ties in. That's your walk. That's where you are in recovery. Mm -hmm. And for the newcomer or many of us, uh, the retread idea or the person that keeps slipping or, you know, having um, relapses or whatever verbiage you use, Mm -hmm. it is the awakening through that process to get to the recovered state that would be to be identified as the experience. Do you think that's what all the changes through the appendix changes in the years that you have so brilliantly studied, obviously, and expressed this morning, do you think that's what ties in that possible um, amendum, per se, in regards to the awakening and the experience? I'm not sure the question, but I'll take a shot. The spiritual awakening as a result of the steps is different from the spiritual experience. The experience that Bill had was profound. He was in the town's hospital, and he had worked the first 11 steps with Ebby and God the day before. That would be December 14, 1935, 34, excuse me, 34. And the next day, he's sleeping in his bed, and he sees the room fill with white light, and he feels this presence of God as he had never felt it before, and it changed his life forever. The awakening is the very slow experience, uh, it, it can, not very slow, but slower experience of the educational variety. We pick up education, we pick up knowledge, uh, and all of a sudden it changes us. Uh, I remember sitting on a Sunday afternoon at Swedish Covenant Hospital in Chicago, and somebody said, if you do what you did, you'll get what you got. And it just changed my life. If you do what you did, you'll get what you got. And somebody then, you know, they would say something else and through the years. And that's, you know, that's why meanings and, and literature are so important. But as I start learning new things, it sheds new lights on other corners of problems I had been having. And it, it helps me to get closer to God and further away from M&Ms with peanuts. I hope I answered the question. Thank you, exactly. Laura. Thank you, Laura. Who else has a question for Harlan? One to unmute. Um, my name is Valerie. Uh, Hi, Valerie B. Hold on one second. Who else popped up? Jenny S. Jenny S. If everybody could mute, please, that'll help. Thank you. Who else has a question? Esther C. Esther C. Mary H. Mary H. Anyone else? Okay, then. Valerie B. Go ahead. Yes, I I thank you, Harlan, for your service. Um, My question is, is, um, it was about the emotions. you know, for a regular person, uh, dealing with those emotions. Uh, If you could elaborate more on that, I would appreciate it. Okay. Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, our great medical benefactor, when he wrote The Doctor's Opinion, 
at the bottom of page XXVIII, or 28 in Roman numerals. He says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time uh, <clears throat> excuse me, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Now, put in the words in your mind, when we're not eating, we're restless, irritable, and discontent unless we can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which we see others taking with impunity. And what impunity means is they don't get punished for it. Impunity has the same root word as the word punished. And we see these people eating moderately or eating whatever, and they don't seem to have the problems we have. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, spiritual awakening, there's very little hope of his recovery. So let's talk about these emotions, and I'll try to make it as brief as I can. The reason that we go to the food is not because we're hungry. We think we're hungry. I have a taste for M&Ms with peanuts. I have a taste for McDonald's fries, whatever that may be. And we think we're hungry and we're not. And people looked at me my whole life and wondered why I was eating the way I was eating. And I looked at them my whole life and wondered why they're not eating. And I didn't understand where this desire for the food first comes from. All human beings have emotions. All human beings have fear, happiness. We discount happiness sometimes, but look at Fred's story in Chapter 3. Happiness, jealousy, guilt, shame, remorse, fear, anger. These are all emotions that normal human beings have. And these emotions that we have in a normal human being, a person that is not afflicted with compulsive overeating, are dissipated quite nicely. They get dissipated through, oh, going to the gym, uh, uh, watching a TV program, walking the dog, spending time with loved ones, driving around, listening to your favorite song as you're on the highway. All these methods will dissipate these emotions quite nicely in a normal human being. Are you with me so far? Okay. But in my brain, my mental twist on the emotional side of my brain knows a way to dissipate the discomfort of these emotions. And it dissipates the discomfort of these emotions by driving me irresistibly into the arms of a Kit Kat bar or M&Ms with peanuts or whatever it is, cake, whatever it is, that's going to give me the effect. Okay? Now, the intelligent side of my brain says, no, 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 don't eat that. You've been single for six years now since your divorce. You'd love to go on a date with a girl. You're not going to get dates if you're, if you're fat. You're not going to get dates if you don't look good, whatever that may be. But the emotional side of my brain says, eat the M&Ms with peanuts. 
You deserve them. You need them. You, they're not going to treat you that way. Besides, tomorrow everything will be okay. So I eat the M&Ms with peanuts or the Kit Kat bar, and I get this effect. The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating those foods. And the emotions which have been bothering me are now dissipated to a very comfortable level. And that's what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. Now, unfortunately, that's not all that's amiss with me. I also have a physical allergy. And that allergy is the abnormal adverse reaction to these foods. So that when I eat a Kit Kat bar or M&Ms with peanuts or cake or pie or what have you, I trigger this physical allergy, and I eat way, way more than I intended to. And so the more I eat, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it's just endless. And so the original thing of step one, my life, I'm powerless over food, and my life's unmanageable. If I can't eat because of the allergy, and I can't keep from eating because of the mental twist, because these emotions are going to continue whether I'm standing on my head or not. These emotions are going to continue. And, Valerie, that's why we have to work all the steps every single day, because no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being, and I'm going to have emotions every day. The world looked at me and saw me eating and wondered why. I looked at the world and saw them not eating and wondered why. Because I didn't realize that food was doing something for me, not to me, for me, that it doesn't do for them. Food changes my perception of reality. Instantly. I hope that answers it. Thank you very much, Valerie. Thanks, Valerie. Ginny, yes? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is Ginny. Um, Harlan, I don't know all of your story, but we talk about this book, this big book, as being convinced that this book is the answer. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, what made you convinced? Um, Did you stop drinking so you had experience with this book? Or did you meet somebody else that was 700 pounds? What made you convinced that this book was the answer? By trying everything else but this book and meeting with adjunct failure, with absolute failure every step of the way. I never met anyone else that was 700 pounds. I'm not a drinker. I am not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am not an alcoholic by any stretch of anyone's imagination. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I have been a compulsive overeater my whole life. What convinced me was by trying everything else and meeting up with failure. The only thing that ever worked for me was following this book. I have to be out of ideas. If I still have an idea on how I'm going to do this myself, my way, then I am not going to recover because the only method I have The only method that I have of living my life 
free of M&Ms with peanuts, Kit Kat bars, Ritz crackers, is by following these steps. And it doesn't matter how long I've been doing it, I have to continue doing it. But the only way I came to the right answer was by trying every wrong answer imaginable an absolutely nauseating number of times. And that's how I came to this conclusion. Thank you. Esther or Ginny, if you still have any ideas on how you're going to do this a different way, then you're going to do them. You're going to do them, but they didn't work for me. No, I, I believe in the steps, so thank you very much. Thanks, Jenny. Esther thank you. C is next, I think. Yes, Esther C, you're up. Hi, good morning. Thanks, Leah. Thanks so much, Harlan, for your presentation. It's Esther C. I wanted to ask you, when you take someone through the big book, do you begin at the doctor's opinion or do you start at the preface? And, and a lot of the history that you taught us today is not written in there, um, but let's say if we – do you think it's important to give that over to sponsees as well? I'd like your um, take I don't on that. Give them, I don't give them a ton of history because when they come to me at first, they're they're suffering. They're they're just days out of a food coma, and so I begin at the doctor's opinion. Let's get them where they can where they're not like newborn calves trying to stand. Esther, I don't give them that history until a little later on, and we kind of we kind of go back into it. And then we also go into some things I didn't really have time for today, the history, the, a longer bit of the history of the book, and I also will go into things with them like the symbol, the triangle surrounded by the circle, which we don't see in our books today because of we lost the cop, the AA lost the copyright of the first edition. But I go into unity, service, and recovery and the triangle is an equilateral triangle surrounded by a circle, the circle symbolizing infinity, that we keep going, we keep studying, we keep doing it, we keep doing it. But I start them off with the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, the first chapters, get them into the steps, and then when we have some breathing room, when I feel that they're standing on steady legs, I will come back and fill them in. There's a lot of history in Bill's story that they'll get from me how this all came with Ebby, Sieber Graves Jr., uh, Roland Hazard. They'll get enough of that from me at that point. Um, but I do start them at the doctor's opinion, and I work backwards at times and fill them in. Thank you. Thanks, Esther. Mary H. Hi, Harlan. It's Mary H., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from California. Hi, Mary. Hi. And my question is, you talked about how few people are recovering and mm -hmm. are recovered. Mm -hmm. And I just want to know a little bit more about what do you suggest? And, uh, I would suggest getting back really into sad. the big book. I would yeah. suggest if we all go back to the big book and start working the program that way, then we will see these recovering numbers jump. I have done – I'm. by the way, I don't know where in California you are, but I'm coming to Orange County in July, and I'm coming to L.A. in September 10th to do a day with the big book. But anyway, that aside, um, I think that for me, and there are people that will object to me saying this, and there are people that will object to me even going there, but if we all got back to the big book and really did it the way that these first guys did it, we will see these recovering numbers jump I have been at retreats and conventions all over this country, 
and never in my life have I had quite the same experience twice. But one of the experiences that I had that was overwhelming to me emotionally, and I don't often do this and I don't often say this, but I was in tears coming home from Virginia Beach last November. I had never witnessed a 500-people group of recovered people like I had experienced in Virginia Beach. And I believe that one of the spearheads of the resurgence in recoveries in Overeaters Anonymous is coming through the Vision for You group. I believe one of the spearheads of the resurgence of recovery is coming because the Vision for You groups are studying the big book and they're taking those actions which will bring them closer to God and further away from a Kit Kat bar or Oreo cookies. Um, I never, I, I was overwhelmed with emotion coming back from Virginia Beach. I was in tears. It's a long flight uh, between, uh, I, I had a flight to Norfolk, and from Norfolk I flew to Charlotte, and from Charlotte I flew back to Phoenix. That's a long flight. It's a five-hour flight. And I was, I was so emotional. I had rented a movie on my phone. You know, you can watch movies on your iPhone. I didn't even want to see the movie. I, I was just overwhelmed, overwhelmed. But I think that, Mary, if we get back to the big book, you'll see these numbers in recovery jumping through the ceiling. Well, thanks, Carlin. I felt the same way about the, the retreat in Virginia Beach. It was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Unbelievable. Thank you, Mary. Carlin, should we take a few more questions? I'm yours until 7.30, which is my time. It's 7.07 right now. So I'm yours until 7.30. You tell me what to do, I'll do it. Okay, thank you very much. Any uh, other Karen, questions? Karen Carl, S. in Michigan. Judy K. Karen S., Judy K. Tara. Tara. Anyone else? This is the last shout-out for questions. All Jody. right, I'll pick Jody. Yes, Did I catch yes. you, Jody? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Karen S., go right ahead. Thank you, Leah. Thank everyone on the line. Um, hi, Harlan. I could not agree more um, with with your um, evaluation of the Virginia Beach Conference and my response to the Virginia Beach Conference. And um, I, a friend and I went together, and, I, and we came back on fire for um, for the big book, and we've been talking about it in our meetings. And our one small town face-to-face meeting, and I think it's it's showing there are new people coming in um, that never that we we really never had for the last three years or so that I've been in this face-to-face meeting. The puzzle to me is that um, we talk about the big book and we bring in some of the um, CDs from the conference and podcasts from the from these Sunday presentations. And there's resistance, Harlan. Um, we had somebody the, the other week who just got very, very angry uh, about one of the podcasts and said it was, well, I don't know, it doesn't matter, but that resistance. Can you speak to that a little bit? There's always going to be resistance. You know what they say, Karen, uh, you know, 10 compulsive overeaters, 21 opinions. But the bottom line is is that um, there is going to be resistance because the addict by their nature is a sensitive rebel. 
uh, we are sensitive rebels, and we don't like to be told what to do, and we like to do things our way, and we like to have our own way. And this is a program for, not for people who need it. It is not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And what I've learned over the years is not everyone has hit a bottom, and not everyone intends to do any of this stuff. There are people in OA meetings who are, A, non-compulsive overeaters. There are people in OA who have no intention of doing any of this work. And there are people in OA that just like to, to if you say north, they'll say south. And that's okay. God put them in our lives to make us work 10 steps. That's great. But, Karen, if you and I, don't work the steps out of the big book the way it's prescribed, we're going to die in the food, and we don't want to do that. So we just need to focus in on what we need to do, and if there's resistance from someone else, that is okay. That doesn't mean they're bad people. That doesn't mean we should, you know, call them names and say, shame, shame, everybody knows your name. But it just means that they need to do something else, and that's okay. God bless them. God bless them. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Karen. Good to hear your voice. Thank you. Judy Kay, you're up. Good morning, Harlan. Thank you for your I'm not your coming great... to Wisconsin. No, I am hey. not coming to Wisconsin. No. Well, well, you know, that was my first question. You no. said you went to Canada. Canada's further than Wisconsin. No, I'm not coming to Door County. No. Shekhetovakasha. No. All right, what's your question? <laughs> If I can't have a little fun with Judy, then I don't, I, don't, I don't want to play anymore. Okay, go ahead, Judy. What's your question? Okay, so my question is, um, you know, in the, in the forward to the second edition where it says 50% got sober at once and remained that way, 25% sobered up after some relapses. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, because I sobered up after thousands of relapses, mm-hmm. so I'm thinking um, – there's, there is some leeway for people who cannot grab this program right away. And so, um, again, I know that you answered that question earlier when you said that, you, that you, if the person's not serious, you see them, you, you tell them to just go, go try some more stuff. But I'm just wondering, you know, about... It says 25% sobered up after some relapses. I guess the big book doesn't really say how many relapses. And when you studied AA history, mm-hmm. have you read anything how, about how far and how long they worked with, with people who, you know, drunks who just would come back and come back and come back and finally sober up? Well, and that's my question. Three. In Chapter 3, we're told about Fred, and they had worked with Fred a bunch of times. They had worked with some of these guys a bunch of times. Some of these guys came out of asylums, and they kept working with them. I will continue working with someone until they show me that they don't want to do this. But I don't think that there's a number. I think that what it is is there's an epiphany. And the epiphany that we go through as human beings is, I want to live. I want to do this. And until that epiphany occurs, forget it. You're not going to reach the person. You know, we have to come to a point where the fear of more eating outweighs the fear of giving up the food. And that takes one thing, which is the only convincer that has ever worked for me, massive amounts of pain, massive amounts of pain. 
And I think that every person has a different bottom. Some people will, excuse me, will come in as anorexics. Some people will come in as bulimics. Some people will come in a little overweight. Some will come in a lot overweight. Whatever that person is, they're going to have to hit a bottom. And the only thing we can know is that when they hit that bottom, we have a job to be part of the outstretched hand of Overeaters Anonymous to those who urgently seek it. But until they hit a bottom, there's not much that can be done for them. There's really not much that can be done for them. And no, I'm not coming to Door County at all, period, end of discussion. Okay, Harlan, you never know. Don't but say, don't you, say never. Okay, I love you. Thank all you. Right, take Thank care. you, uh, Harlan. Okay. All right, Tara W., please. I decided I'm going to call Harlan off the call. Okay. No, it's All right. right. Thank you. Then our final Thank question. You so <laughs> Thank you, Tara. Okay, then our final question comes from Jody E. Can you hear me? Yes. Perfectly. Okay. Hi. Good morning. This is Jody E., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in California. Thank you so much, Harlan, for this very interesting discussion of the history of AA. You Thank you. Yeah, I have a couple of um, books here. One is called, and you may have said this in the beginning, and I didn't hear that you're beginning, Alcohol and, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, A Brief History. Oh, good book. And the other one is called Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, um, that's an outside book by Susan Cheever, or not by Susan, Ernie Kurtz, and yeah. you know I'm not going to comment on that because it's an outside kind of thing to 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 our purpose here. But okay. the bottom line is is that AA comes of age is a great book. There are other ones out there called Pass It On, which was written at conference approved by AA. Pass It On. Uh, there are many many things out there that you can avail yourself to. Uh, mm-hmm. I would recommend also an AA book that is a compilation of Bill Wilson's grapevine writings. I talked this morning about the entrance of the traditions and how he introduced them through the grapevine. And the book is called Language of the Heart. And Language of the Heart is a beautiful compilation. He'll talk about when Eddie dies and when Father Dowling dies and when Sam Shoemaker dies, how he loved these people and you know, mm-hmm. Harry Tebow and all the Ebby and all these other various people. And it's a beautiful compilation of his writings in Grapevine. I recommend these books tremendous. With, with all my soul, I recommend them. There's just a lot of information out there. Great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Nice to have it all kind of condensed. Thank you. Yes, you're very welcome, Jody. Thank you, Jody. Thanks to everyone who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Harlan. You are greatly appreciated. Thank Thank you so much. Appreciate your service. Thank you. I'm going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. 
The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.